for the podcast though so give me one second there we go all right how is everybody today it's so great to have all of you here I apologize for the technical things we haven't tried to do this stuff out of Peril Hall the way we're doing it now and going live streaming and obviously there's more problems than there should be how about that and maybe by next week it'll all be we'll have the audio fixed so because I think the video is fine am I right Patty video is fine okay so glad to see so many people here today it's great glad y'all are here got good to see a lot of lunches here um, some pretty tasty looking lunches so um, first of all I, I messed up last week when I was leaving the house I grabbed in a Bible by mistake that was an NRSV Bible New Revised Standard Version Bible and we've been using the NIV for a long time and so I heard from folks that well what are you what are you doing Scott so this week I have an NIV we will stay in the NIV last week was just a one-week aberration would use the NIV because I know it's the one that's most most out there the most editions of it most easily available through the various apps and everything like that so we're, we'll use the NIV um, as we approach the last portion of the Gospel of John and uh, there are two red boxes that are making the way around the room and if you could please mark yourself present if you are on the roster that roster is two years old pre-pandemic so if if you are not on the roster please add your name and email address on one of the the pages where there's blank space and Connie will add you to the roster so we get to the point where everybody's getting for example the Friday updates for me that go out and tell people what's happening the next week regarding class and all that sort of stuff so the screen's still working behind me that's awesome um, good group online hey online folks I wonder if they had the feedback problems online or if that was only in the room huh yeah yeah so I think they're gonna have to work on it because the little volume thing here is basically off and yet I'm online and you can hear me and all the rest of it so okay I don't really have anything in the way of announcements we are back here we are on back here on Tuesdays um, we are going to finish up the Gospel of John then we're going to roll over to Paul's letter first Corinthians and we will be there for a while and um, we're at the point in John where it's very Lenten because we are coming up to the burial of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus so that's that's really worked out very well I can't think of any other announcements how about you Patty okay and if you hear just a little bit of feedback now and then there's nothing I can do about it just just telling you because I hear a little bit up there sometime up there in the air so anyway would you pray with me gracious Lord we are grateful to be gathered here today to overcome these technical challenges and return to your word and return to the gospel of John as we um, come to the burial of Jesus and then to his resurrection and we pray that you will help us here in John's telling of Jesus's burial and of Jesus's resurrection the truth of the gospel the truth of, of um, what you have done for us in this world to rescue us to reconcile humanity to yourself all this we pray in Jesus's name Amen, amen. all right so where we are is we are at John 19 verse 38 because last week we finished up the section in John's gospel about the crucifixion of Jesus so now we come to the section about the burial of Jesus and as I said we'll be using the NIV in here so a challenge when you go when we do this is to really concentrate 
on John's story, right? Because we, we tend, and I do it too, we all want to do it. We all want to bring in all these other pieces from the other Gospels and stuff, but it's, it's important to kind of try to clear that out, pay attention to John's story. Now, there are minor differences in the Gospel accounts of all of these things, which at first glance might make you go, well, golly, you know, maybe that's not how it is. But the truth is, for anything that I know about in life, when there are, there are minor discrepancies in the, in, in, in the telling of those events from multiple reporters or people leaving a corporate meeting and stuff, that lends credibility to the accounts. Nobody went through and cleaned these up to make them all sort of conform to one another, right? Um, John's telling you the story as he experienced, as he saw it, as he was perhaps told some of it, right? Because we're going to encounter Mary Magdalene in the garden with Jesus, and John would only know that because she told him, or she told somebody who told John, but this is, this is John's story. So uh, I'm going to plunge right in, okay? Cool? So we are at, um, we are where we left off last week at the 19th chapter of John at the 38th verse. Now this is, this of course, we, this is a map I brought last week, if you can see the map, I hope you can, um, of ancient Jerusalem. Nice, simple, black and white, pen and ink kind of map. I've circled on it in red the place of Jesus' crucifixion. It's not the garden tomb. The garden tomb looks like it, but it's not the place. The place is underneath the church at the Holy Sepulchre, for those of you who have been to Jerusalem. And it was a place just outside the city walls, circled here again, because crucifixion was meant to be public. It was meant to be humiliating. It was meant to be shameful. It was a warning to everybody that this is what happens when you stand up to Rome. So it's never going to be carried out in private. It's never going to be carried out of the sight of people. It's going to happen by crossroads. When Jesus was a boy of about 10, the historian Josephus tells us a couple of thousand Jews were crucified by the Romans to put down a revolt. Where did they crucify them? along the roadways in Galilee, right? Of course they did, because that's, that, that's what crucifixion was used for. Um, so let's, talk, let, let, let's read about the burial of Jesus. So as a lead-in, I guess, to comment on Jesus' crucifixion, we're now at the point in this... The, account of this harrowing event that Jesus has died. He is dead. Um, the Romans didn't even have to break his legs to bring about a quick death and probably because he was very severely flogged. Um, but the soldier, the, the execution squad went ahead and put a spear in Jesus' side just to make doubly, triply sure because uh, it was their job. And their Romans were good at, at killing people. So John now puts a little break between the crucifixion when he writes, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, we haven't encountered Joseph of Arimathea in the gospel so far. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish um, council, and he was a wealthy man, which would kind of go along with being a man of power in the council there. It is, it is not a small request that he makes because the Romans would typically take the bodies of those who had been crucified and see that not only were they crucified, but they suffered a humiliating burial, and they would be just tossed in some sort of mass grave or, or humiliating or desecrating grave outside the city walls. 
So Joseph comes to ask Pilate for Jesus's body. Um, it's, he has really at this point, you could ask yourself, what does he have to gain? From coming now, he's going to be public in his support of Jesus. What does he have to gain? He doesn't, he has a lot to lose. He's coming forward in support of a man who was just crucified as a rebel king against Rome. But he does. And the coming forward of Joseph Arimathea is one of those little bits that is recorded in all four Gospels. So it, it's, it, it's a telling piece that, that all four gospel writers tell us that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body. And he was a, a public personage being on the Sanhedrin. So it's one of those pieces that lends, that lends credence to the truth of what happens here, this, these accounts. Okay? Um, so Joseph of Arimathea has stepped forward and asked Pilate for the body. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Boy, I would like to be able to unpack that, but I can't. What does John mean? Was he a disciple later? Was he a secret disciple before Jesus' crucifixion? Did he come to understand the way to what was happening in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion? We're not really told. Um, but John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. As, that's why there weren't anybody except women and one teenager, as best we can tell, the young John at the cross. The, the, men, were, the men were fearful. The men were fearful. Um, Peter and the rest, they're all in hiding, you know, they're not away just mourning. I mean, they are mourning and grieving, I'm sure, but they are in hiding because they knew that the Romans rounded up the followers of would-be messiahs, would-be rebels against Rome. With Pilate's permission, he, Joseph of Arimathea, came and took the body away. So Pilate says yes against the Roman custom. Um, it's really against the Jewish custom to do this. I mean, it, it, gets to, it gets to the way people were treated who had been crucified. Joseph is going to make himself ritualistically unclean in, 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 in even touching Jesus' Jesus's body. And so Pilate says yes. And why does Pilate say yes? Well, I personally, you know, you, you could say, well, because Joseph was a powerful guy and, 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 and Pilate is, is going to, you know, he's through trying to confront the leaders. I think he just, wa I personally think he just wants to stick it in the eye of the leaders, Jewish leaders, one more time, right? We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. Just stick in their eye one more time. No, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I am Pilate. I am the governor here. He asks us ask for the body, and I'm giving it to him. I don't care what you say. I think that's probably more fitting, I guess, with, uh, with the time and the customs. What do you think they would have done? What, the Jewish leaders yeah. would have had his body thrown into some sort of mass grave. Yes. He, he's a blasphemer. He's a, he's a would-be would be fake rebel king, fake messiah as far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, right? He's not, Jewish leaders don't think he's like the messiah, right? Right? So yeah, he would, he would be treated, his body would be treated poorly. Let me put it that way. Yes. Pilate's wife had a dream and, and she told him about it in one of the Gospels and that's a little piece of it that, that makes you think that Pilate is, oh my gosh, this might be an innocent man. I'm just telling you, 
I know a fair bit about those days, and I just can't imagine that Pilate was concerned about the death of an innocent man, supposedly innocent, innocent or not. It's a brutal world. Pilate was a brutal man. Twice he's called back to Rome to stand to account for being too tough on the Jews. This is not a man of peace, okay? And so she has the dream, but I just, I just think it's a, it's a wrong path to go down to see that Pilate is, oh my gosh. You know, maybe he was touched in some way by his encounter with Jesus, but it's one of those places where we tend to view it in the way that we think we would or leaders in our world world would without understanding that this is the world in which people went to see other people killed in the arenas by wild animals by other humans blood being spilt by the thousands for sport for fun you know you think football's rough right we we, we have little conception you know in our world now and this is a wonderful thing that by and large, a, a value life is high, a human life is highly valued, right? You notice we don't put enormous numbers of people to work building pyramids and stuff like that anymore. Why not? Because nobody could afford it. Well, why can't they afford it? Because of the value we put on a human life and human effort. In the ancient world, that was not the case. Human life was was worth very little. Yes. Yeah. That's the one with Joseph Fiennes. Yeah. yeah, they did a good job with that movie. It's called Risen, starring Joseph Fiennes, and he's he's a Roman at the day. They, they do a good job with it. Yeah, you know, you, you just have to try to immerse yourself in their world to, to grasp some of this, to, to grasp these accounts because that's, that's the world they come from. Yes. 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 It might. It might very well. The now at the beginning of that sentence there about Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple might indicate a later discipleship, which would, you know, I, I think it makes, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, what? It's a, okay, so I'm asked about a caste system. It, it's not a caste system like in India, but certainly um, it's a shame and honor culture, and economically, the structure of it is like the Eiffel Tower. That's the way to think about it. Just a few at the top, few in the middle, really nothing much in the way of middle class, and vast numbers of poor, and then vast numbers of slaves below that, supporting the structure of the, thin, skinny Eiffel Tower reaching upwards. So that, that's a pretty good way to think about it. But Joseph is not going to be alone in this, okay? He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus in John's Gospel is the only person you meet that is kind of developed in John's Gospel who's not a disciple. The disciples, yes, but Nicodemus, because when you first meet Nicodemus in John 3, he's coming to Jesus in the night and saying, I don't get this. And Jesus says, you're a teacher, and you should get this, right? And Nicodemus says, no, I don't get this. And um, Jesus says, well, to understand what's happening, you have to be born from above. And then we meet Nic Nicodemus 
maybe chapter 7, I think, maybe 10, where Nicodemus is kind of coming to Jesus' defense, saying, look, let's not jump the gun here on, on this condemnation of Jesus. And now we see that he is going to come forward with Jer Joseph of Arimathea to help take care of Jesus' body. So, verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. That's chapter 3 in John's Gospel. Now, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Very typical. Because, well, okay, so this is where I need to explain. Whoa, okay. This is where I need to explain how they buried people. So I brought a few photos to describe this, okay. Because for a lot of my life, I was so confused by this because if you think of the burial, the way we bury people, it doesn't work. It all makes no sense, okay? They didn't bury people the way we bury people. They didn't dig a hole in the ground and put people six feet under. Instead, they would have taken Jesus' body from the cross to a tomb. And we're going to find out that it's a tomb that had not been used, a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. And these tombs, um, because the, the stone there is typically limestone, it's, it's pretty porous. Um, the area of, of Jesus' crucifixion and burial, Golgotha, was a quarry used to work. Stone was cut for the building of the Temple Mount, so it collected water, and it would have had a lot of, of um, caves and stuff in it. And a man of means, as Joseph of Arimathea was, would have had a tomb cut there, cleaned up there for, for his family. Okay? So, um, this is from the garden tomb in Jerusalem. This is, this is, if you go to Jerusalem, one of the sites that people visit, all the Christians visit, is the garden tomb north of Jerusalem. Beautiful place. Feels like it's the place where Jesus was buried. Looks like the place, but it's not the place. <laughs> the place is underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a big mess. Anybody in Jerusalem want to argue with me about the Church of Holy Sepulchre being a big mess? It's a big mess. It's a big, it's all kinds of construction. It's, it's crazy. Add what? Add-ons. Add Add construction projects. Yeah. Capital campaigns. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But the garden tomb was found in the late 19th century, and, and, and because the Catholics and the Orthodox were running the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and had been for centuries, the Protestants wanted something of their own. And so the Protestants sort of glommed on to this. But it is illustrative of, of the tombs. It's a later tomb. This is more from the Byzantine area, maybe 800 AD. But there is an opening. If you look down at the bottom, underneath a step step stool there that tourists used to get in you'll see that there's a little like it's like a little gutter okay and that gutter is there because there would be a round stone that had been carved out thank you patty a, a round stone that had been carved out so that the stone could be rolled back and forth and the stone would be rolled in front of the opening to close it off to really typically typically animals because what was going to happen inside the tomb was that let me see if I can do this upside down what are the odds Patty are you really okay so here this artist has Jesus being laid out on a flat um, surface his body's being taken care of this a little bit cartoonish illustration illustrates a typical place where there would be a cutout in the wall of the cave or the tomb with a flat surface and the body surface and the body would be placed there wrapped up 
And typically, things like myrrh or aloe or other nice-smelling stuff would be laid around the body just to help deal with the smell of decomposition because the body would lay like this, wrapped up, until the body had decomposed. And then the family would come back and collect the bones and put the bones in a bone box, which I failed to bring a picture of. A bone box is just a box. It's as long as the thigh bone because the thigh bone is the longest bone in the human body. Just a piece of trivia that you might win. You know, might be good in a bar sometime. Longest, bo <laughs> longest bone is the thigh bone. And so a bone box, some of them are very plain. Some of them are more ornate, but they're just a stone box. And the bones would be all piled in there and the person's name would be scratched in at the end, and then it would be stacked with other bone boxes that the family had. That's what they did. They did it for a period from about 100 years before Jesus until the time that the Romans overran the countryside, destroyed the temple, destroyed the Temple Mount in 70 AD. From that point forward, we don't have as much evidence of this type of burial. You can ask me, well, why did they bury people this way, Scott? We suppose that it is because it is a statement about the Jewish belief in the bodily resurrection from the dead. Not that they really thought that God needed our help with that, but it was still kind of a statement, I think. And um, anyway, that's what they did. Uh, they weren't the only culture to use bone boxes. The, fan the fancy word for them is ossuary. If you travel around the Mediterranean you'll, and look in museums, you will find ossuaries here and there, and they're not, they're not all um, from, from, from Israel. But in Israel, there's quite a few because there were a lot of them used, and most of them were very common, very plain, a few limestone slabs stuck together and the bones put inside of it. And so in John's account, what they're going to do is to come and um, put some good-smelling stuff. That's what the aloe and the myrrh is about, right? But the next piece of this is shocking, surprising, theological. 75 pounds of it, right? 75 pounds. That's a lot. Susan. Well... Okay, so Susan's bringing out that the, the, the wise, the, the, the magi from the east brought frankincense, myrrh, gold, probably other stuff as well, but those are the three mentioned, right? These were expensive. They were for royalty. So this is for royalty, not only in the types of myrrh and aloe, but in the amount. This is a royal burial, a royal burial. And the piece that you need to connect with it, even more than the Magi, is back in John 12, right? When Jesus is anointed for burial. So let's go back, since we have our Bibles with us, let's look back to John 12, just to remind ourselves of that story. Let's just read a little bit of it. First paragraph, John chapter 12, verse 1. Now, this is before Palm Sunday, right? This is Palm Sunday comes after the, what we're about to read. This, this, is getting, this, is, this is looking ahead past Palm Sunday to Good Friday. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, this would be Martha's sister, took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, a perfume suitable for the kings. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Well, Judas Iscariot takes issue with it. Judas Iscariot 
either doesn't understand or wants to ignore what's happening. He is being anointed for burial, and he's being anointed for burial in the way that you would anoint kings. And so there's a, there's a connection there to, to Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds of this very expensive stuff to give Jesus a burial fit for a king. That's what it comes down to. Why is Jesus going to get a burial fit for a king? Not a trick question. He is a king. There you go. I don't ask trick questions, really. I don't. If I can help it. So verse, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Kind of, kind of in a mummy-like thing, right? Because they've got to wrap the body all up and it's going to sit there and they, then they're going to put the spices around it. They might put some of them a little bit inside the wrapping, whatever they would decide to do. Um, and the expectation is that the body would repose there, would lie there until it was decomposed. In a tomb like this, there would be bodies in various states of decomposition as family members passed away. Big extended families. So grandma, you know, the expectation is that grandma might be in there in the next year or something while Jesus is decomposing, you see? And so the, the stone that's rolled back and forth, this cut round, looks like a wheel, this round stone is rolled back and forth to allow them to go in and come out and take care of these these bodies and when the ones that have reached full decomposition are done <laughs> put the bones inside the bone box okay so let me just pause and see if there's questions about their method of burial because it clears up lots lots of issues when i was a kid i wondered okay so they dig a hole in the ground and they put jesus there and then there's some sort of stone what, like on top of the gray? And nobody, nobody explained anything to me that made it make sense. But if you know the method of burial, the whole, all the gospel accounts make complete sense. Patty. <laughs> I know in Matthew's gospel, it says they make a point of it that this is a brand new tomb. No one has ever been buried in it I think, so Patty's asking, in Matthew's gospel, one thing Matthew brings out is that Joseph's family has not yet used this tomb. And what's the significance of that? I think it's the fact that it's a new tomb. And newness will come into the story. I'm not sure how much theological significance it has. I'm inclined to, to not see as much there as I will see when we get to the garden here in a minute in John's gospel. I think it could just be that John has, Joseph Arimathea has a new tomb, unused, cut into the rock, ready to start being used for his family, and he gives it over to the burial of Jesus. You know, and then, yes. No, really, pretty much everybody did, and, and they had access to him because the families would be large, they would be extended, and maybe next week I'll bring a photo. So I have a few photos of like in the back of the tombs, these bone boxes just all stacked up one on top of another. So families didn't have to have a lot in order to use them. Now, if you were, you know, super poor, you might not have access to it. But, was it, but it wasn't only something for the rich. You know, about, in about 1990 or so, they found the bone box of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they, it, it's all ornate, you know, it's all specially carved. But most of them were a few slabs of limestone and a scribbled name at the end, you know, Yeshua, Bar, Yosef, something like that would be scribbled at the end of Jesus. Of course, his bones never make it into a bone box, do they? No. Yes, dear. Good. Uh -huh. He was wondering um, if it's unusual that the two men were preparing the body. Did women 
Okay, so it's a good, Larry Rivera, Rivera asks, is it unusual that the two men are doing this? Because it was usually women who, who handled the burial. Yes, it is. Because handling dead bodies was generally left to the women because it made one ritualistically unclean. And this is a very patriarchal society. Is it unusual that one is a Pharisee and the other one, I don't know if he's a Pharisee, I don't know if we know if he's a Pharisee or not, but he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Is that unusual? That is blindingly shocking. Okay, so, so again, it, 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 it all lends to the credence of the accounts because Joseph was a public figure. Um, Nicodemus was a public figure to some extent. He was a Pharisee. So it is unusual, and it speaks to um, what does it speak to? It speaks to Jesus actually being the royal king who should be anointed in this way. And what's the second question? I don't think Orthodox Jews bury this way. I'm not aware of anybody who buries this way today. I could be wrong. I just don't know about it. It might be happening out there, but, but I, I'm not aware of it if they do. Um, but of course, now what do we do? Right down the street. If you're not going to be cremated, what are they going to do with you? They're going to embalm you, right? Because the human body doesn't do well as, as the days start to pass. Remember in the story of Lazarus in John 11, what are we told about? You know, uh, Martha says to Jesus, you know, it's really gonna stink. He's been in there four days. Same, same idea. Yes. Well, let's not get ahead. Okay, but I wanted to ask this question. And, and, and incense isn't part of it. It's myrrh and aloe yeah. in John's story. Right. Okay. So there wouldn't have been any smell, bad smell. Well, it would have been a the idea is that, okay. Do you remember when, yes. So the question is about the fragrance that might have been in the tomb. And fragrance does matter a lot through scripture. There's these places where even the sacrifices of the Jews are a pleasing fragrance to God as they they float upward it's more like it's more like when I was in eighth grade and had been out playing and running around stuck to high heaven didn't want to take time to take a shower so I tried to splash on a little bit of granddad's old spice <laughs> it's a little bit more like that you know, because it's just meant to cover up. It's it's that that's it. They're they're dealing with bodies, and bodies decompose quickly, especially in warmer climate. They decompose quickly. They smell. I mean, I don't know that much. I mean, everything I know about dead bodies I learned from the HBO show Six Feet Under, so <laughs> which is really quite good. But anyway, yeah, I, I it's it it's. The important thing is if you understand the basics of the burial, then the gospel accounts make sense about what happens. Okay? So let's... Yes. Yes, sir. You talked about how the Jews felt they were helping the resurrection of their families. It was just a way of signifying... Oh, see, but see, right, so so the question is about, does God really need help with bodily resurrection? And obviously not. God created everything there is out of nothing. Uh, my, my sort of standard question is, what do you think is the state of the Apostle Paul's body today, 2,000 years later? He's, he's soil. He's dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? So no, God doesn't need our help to bodily resurrect us. But it's still, it's still a signifier of their confidence 
that when God, when the, when the big day arrived, that indeed God would resurrect them bodily. Just knowing people, there were five people who thought, well, they were helping God out, but God doesn't actually. No, I mean, think about the people vaporized in the World Trade Center. They're not out of luck. Nobody's out of luck. Mass grave, no mass grave. Vaporized by, in the world. No, nobody's out of luck. God created everything out of nothing. God can, God can do it. God can do it. It's not a matter of science. God can do it. Anything else, Patty? No, it was, you know, I have on um, subtitles. Yes? When you would say mass grave, uh -huh. it came out as mass grave. <laughs> <laughs> we were watching show, some show the other night where the subtitles were completely messed up. Yeah. They were more fun than the show was. <laughs> okay, so let's read on. And again, we're trying to stay focused on John's, John's account. So, Nicodemus, go back to the end of verse 39. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Do people typically get 75 pounds? No. Okay. But the general practice, yes. Okay. Now, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And that is because, I could go back to slides, but I won't. Because Golgotha is in what was a quarry dug out for, to get stone for building the Temple Mount, it was a lot of low places where water would accumulate. So it would end up being what? Greener than the high ground around it. Okay. Scott, yes. Say a garden, I mean, I'm thinking tomatoes and, and carrots and stuff, not flowers. They just mean it's green. You've been there. How brown a place is it? It's a pretty brown place, all in all. And you appreciate any time you come across a lot of greenery, like at the garden tomb. A lot of greenery there. It just makes it all gardenish. So it's not tomatoes. It's not rose bushes. It's just, it's, it's just lots of greenery that they would, people would try to take care of because it's pretty, you know, because it's nice, because it's green. But there is some theology coming up, Mike, so, okay. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Let's make the first connection. A gar What's the first garden in the Bible? Garden. Hang on to that thought. There was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now, John doesn't tell us that it, the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe John doesn't know it. Maybe he just never knew that. But it, other gospel accounts tell us that it do, but it, it, it's a tomb that, it's a tomb, what? Yeah. So, but it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't really matter. It, it, it's a new tomb, unused tomb, in this garden right near the place where Jesus was crucified, right? Um, even the newness of it. What's the truth about the Garden of Eden? That it was new. God made it new. What's the promise in Revelation 21 and Isaiah 66? A new heavens and a new earth. So that word new often has some significance to it, okay? Then verse 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation for the Passover, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That was the tomb they used. And that's all John tells us. So John finishes account of the burial there, Okay? Verse chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, while it was still... Uh, let me give you, the, give you the timing because John doesn't explain it. Because people couldn't touch bodies on the Sabbath, Jesus' body would have been taken down, laid out in the tomb before sunset on Friday, 
and nobody would handle it or touch it or go to the tomb until after sundown on Saturday. So the women, because it is their job, is, are going to come on Sunday. John only has one woman coming. It is Mary Magdalene. She is the focus. It doesn't mean there weren't other women with her. His focus, as you'll see, is on Mary Magdalene. That's the piece of this that he, that he wants to tell. So, early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she comes up. Aye. And let me go back a slide or two. She comes up and she finds the tomb like this, without the, roll, without the rolling stone in front of it. So what do you think she's going to think when she sees that? Exactly. Somebody stole the body. She's not going to be thinking of us. Oh, my gosh, she's been resurrected, yada, yada, yada. No, she's going to think somebody stole the body. Remember, Jesus dies. He's, a, he's crucified on Friday. What does, it, what, what does it mean to his disciples that he was crucified on Friday? They have no conception of a crucified Messiah. That's an oxymoron. The words do not go together. They're hiding because when he's crucified, in their minds, they have their beloved master and rabbi wasn't quite who they thought he was. And they will mourn him, but no, another failed would-be Messiah. There were some before Jesus. There would be some after Jesus. We know their names. So that's a hard bridge for us Christians to make, to want to get in the mind of the disciples on Friday that, oh, my gosh, they're thinking, oh, this is all over. It's all over. And no, no, no. Peter denies Jesus three times. It's not just because he's scared. He denies Jesus three times because we thought he was. We thought he was. But no, they know he wasn't. So they're still devoted to him. The women are going to come and take care of him. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus want to take care of him. But that's just going to be as far as it goes. And when she comes to the, up to the tomb, that looks like this, or something like this, and, and the stone is rolled away, it's going to be because somebody took the body. So, verse 2. So she did what? She went running to find Simon Peter. Why Simon Peter? Because he's kind of the leader of the disciples. And she's part of the <laughs> she's part of that pack. Right? The pack wasn't the pack wasn't only the twelve. The twelve is a designation of an inner circle of the pack. Um, the gospels don't even agree exactly about what the names are of the twelve. It's the number twelve that really matters the most. And um but there's this group of disciples who are close to Jesus, and she is among that, even though, see, in John's gospel, this is the first time we meet her. You haven't met, you may think you have, but you haven't met her before now in John's gospel. Now you meet Mary Magdalene. She's from, her name is Mary, like nearly every woman in that part of the world. Her name is Mary, and she's from a city called Magdala which is today called Migdal on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where she's from, Magdala. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's probably the teenage John, son of Zebedee, who 60 years later would write the gospel. Okay? And here's what she said. They have taken the Lord, 
okay? Kind of, a, kind of an interesting choice of words, okay? Um, probably have to be careful about how much theology we invest in it when it comes out of her mouth. Um, the master would be a way to think about it. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And we don't even know who, don't even know who the they is. But he's, has she, did, now look back, let's read it closely. Does she go and look inside the tomb? No. She just sees the stone rolled away. She infers one thing, understandable, that somebody's been into the tomb. Why would they go into the tomb? Well, it's got to be to make away with Jesus' body. So she, without going into the tomb, turns and goes running for Simon Peter to carry this news that somebody's been messing with Jesus. Right? So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. There's a lot of running here. There's more running here than there is anywhere else in the Bible, practically. Both were running. The other disciple outran Peter. So... <laughs> Right, because who's Peter? Peter's this middle-aged fisher guy, fisherman. John is probably, John's, John's a virtual kid, so he's quick. <laughs> I can just picture it. They're, they're hauling it. It's probably a ways that they have to go, and Peter is slowly falling further behind, <laughs> right, trying to keep up with the younger, younger fellow. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, what does he do? What does the younger man do? He bent over, because this entrance is a little misleading. Typically, the entrances wouldn't be very tall because it's just harder. So, and it's, there, you'd have to make the stone bigger. So, you have an entrance, but it, you're not going to make it very big because then you've got to make the stone bigger, and it's just more complicated. So, he... This is the younger, the younger disciple. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So what does he do? He goes in and he pokes his head through the door and he sees the strips of linen lying there. Does that answer the question about what's happened to Jesus? Not really. It's perplexing, but there's still multiple answers to why there are strips of linen lying there. So I picture him sort of leaning in and he sees the strips of linen and then he freaks out and steps back out again because nobody's yet gone into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. How would he Because, you know, I think around the head, they would typically use a piece of cloth. They would use a piece of cloth to cover the head. So the strips are strips and the cloth is more substantial. How about like that? And that's what John sees. So he leans in and that's what he sees. Okay? So he sees the linen strips. And, and he is probably the writer of the gospel. Probably the writer of the gospel. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still in its place, separate from the linen. Okay. So now what, now what picture is developing? It's where this would take the body and leave the linen. That you could take the body and leave the linen. That you could take the body and leave the napkin up where the head was. N.T. Wright says it's a little bit like you had a balloon and you covered it in linen and wrapped napkin over around and then you punctured the balloon and the stuff is all just sitting there where it was, which is puzzling because if you stole the body, you might make a bit of a mess of things, right? You probably wouldn't clean up. You probably wouldn't clean up after yourself, right? So just imagine, I, I always, I don't know, I enjoy trying to sort of, put myself there so I imagine they are just deeply befuddled they're confused what's happening who would do this what's happening what are they seeing 
verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Oh, I got the two mixed up, didn't I? I did, I did. Verse Simon Peter poked, I'm sorry. So Simon Peter came, look, start up verse 6 again, please, just for me. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in, into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. So I should have read more of a chunk, just from my own. Okay. So the younger one looks in, but doesn't go in. Peter finally catches up, huffing and puffing. He goes in. He sees the linen cloths. He sees the napkin. And then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first but hadn't entered the tomb, enters the tomb. Do I finally have it right? What do you think? It's, 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 it's exceedingly difficult sometimes to read Scripture carefully, isn't it? Because you think you know what your eyes are going to find. And, you know, it, it is not an easy thing to read Scripture carefully. Uh, the bits that you are too, that you're familiar with. So, back to verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And believed. The pistis word. He had faith. He faithed. He, in what? Yeah, because in verse 8, there's the, the, he, it's, he tells us they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So, what did he believe? Maybe, maybe, maybe he had faith that Jesus was actually Messiah, even though he had been crucified. Um, maybe, you know, what, what's that, Mike? Well, that's a big leap. Because, son, you know, Son of God has two meanings. There is the Son of God meaning, which is Messiah, and then there's the Son of God meaning, which is divinity. So that's, even a, that's a huge leap. But maybe, I wish he told us more. All he tells us is they still don't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, that he would be resurrected. Okay? Because there's a lot of stuff that goes with resurrection. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so they get there. The young one looks in, takes, takes a look at things. Peter arrives. He actually goes into the tomb. The young one follows. What's, li what's there are the linen strips and the napkin as if it was a deflated balloon. The younger one says he saw it and believed, but without telling us the object of his belief, his faith. And then they leave. Do they leave? Do they leave befuddled? I think they do. I think they leave befuddled and perplexed. They do. They don't understand. Oh, they need a process. Process. What an interesting word. I had never processed anything in my life. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't know what that word means even. I'm a, that's a generational thing for me. So they leave befuddled because, again, the words crucify Messiah don't go together. Right? Crucify Messiah and resurrection. I mean, there's no expectation anywhere in Second Temple Judaism of one Jew being re resurrected. Resurrection was about everybody being resurrected. So I think they just leave befuddled and perplexed and not understanding, and they see the linen cloths, and they see the napkin, and they just don't know, and they're shaking their heads, and they're going to go back and tell the other disciples what's going on. But one person stays behind. 
Mary Magdalene. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Her response is really the most appropriate, isn't it? She stood outside the tomb crying. Why? She's crying because they have stolen the body of her Lord, her rabbi, her teacher. This man that she had devoted herself to for, I don't know, a couple of years. And she's weeping. It's all, it, it's just like the tragedy of Friday has now been compounded. Jesus' body's being desecrated. And so she stood out the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And what she saw were two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, did Peter see that? No, no. no Peter did not see that. Did the young disciples see that? No. So were they there when Peter and the young disciple went in the tomb? No, surely they would have noticed. Okay? Do we know how long Mary stayed out the outside the tomb weeping before she went in? No. But when she goes into the tomb, there are two angels there. How would the angels appear to her? just based upon the biblical evidence. Would they have wings? What? You're in trouble. Okay. No wings. Okay. Any big, radiant, blinding light, typically when people meet angels. No, but there's something about them. There's something that typically when they encounter people, what are the first words the angels say? Do not be afraid. But in this case, they're encountering a woman who is weeping. They're encountering a woman who is grieving. And the angels who were not told of any radiant stuff, they're dressed in white, yes, they're seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head of the bench. Let's go back to the bench. One at the head, one at the foot of that bench when she peers in. And they asked her, woman, again, not a, not a, word, not a word of disrespect. Woman, why are you crying? And she gives the response that in her mind in the mind of Peter and the younger disciple they have taken my Lord away she said and I don't know where they have put him and she's just broken hearted she's just broken hearted I think it's just as she told it to him Probably that's how she told it to him. Or that's how she told it to somebody else who told John. I don't think it's unusual. No, I don't know that she knew she was talking to angels. I don't know. There's, there's just so many questions. <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes people seem to realize they're talking to angels and sometimes they don't, as in Joshua, who doesn't even realize he's talking to an angel. Okay, so when we come back there here next week, we are going to come to the encounter between Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the garden. And Jesus is going to be the gardener in this new garden. So spin some theological webs with that. And I'm going to invite Patty up to close us in prayer.
Waters, a 28-year-old woman who's been in intensive care, intubated since February. Wow. Kendall. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't have a mic. Anybody else have a? Um, Denise has daughter has a friend who's 28 years old and is seriously ill. She's been intubated in intensive care since February. So, and they are still, it just has a whole slew of problems that they have not been able to get a hold on. Anybody else? Okay. We thank you so much for this beautiful day, and we thank you, God, for this opportunity.